0: The reading is from James 5 verse 1 to 6. Now listen you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. <laughs> you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. All right, hello everyone. All right, Um, so when I first looked at this reading that I had been given to speak on, um, I was pretty keen on swapping it for another one. um, I was actually reading the King James version the first time and I'm gonna show you what that looks like. Um, The the title's a little bit different in the King James, it just says warning to the rich, none of that rich oppresses stuff that the NIV has. Um, And just from reading the title and the first few lines, I was thinking, I don't want to do this. Um, So I'm going to show you it just so you can join me in this terror. Um, So here's King James for you. It says, warning to the rich. Ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days." It's pretty terrifying, eh? <laughs> so at this point, there's a few things going through my mind. Um, first of all, you know, as we've noticed in the Book of James, this whole series has been pretty hard-hitting, and you know, first response as has been in the same for the other passages is thinking, you know, it's a bit harsh, James. You know, so how am I going to soften this a bit when I'm preaching on it? You know, how can I make it more palatable? Um, I think most of us here in this room could be classed as rich. Um, And secondly, I was thinking, you know, I think everyone's going to switch off and stop listening as soon as they see the reading. Um, Does anyone else do that when there's like a preacher person talking about money and you just sort of cringe a bit and get your guard up and hold on to your wallet? Um, yeah, Yeah, pretty much. I don't blame you. So it's, um, it's one of those topics that's been abused so many times and I sort of prepare myself to turn to some kind of like guilt trip message or some nonsense that you know, God can't hear your prayers unless you give them a bunch of money. You know, anyone else? You guys come across that? Yeah. Um, and then thirdly, I was thinking, you know, I hope there's not going to be any new people at church today. Yeah. I've heard lots of people whose only experience with church, or at least the bits that they remember the most, is constantly being harassed about how the church wants their money. So then as time went on and I sort of accepted that this is the reading I'm doing, get on with it, accept it, um, and as I was preparing more and I looked back on my notes from when I first glanced at it and, and it was those three things I've just mentioned and I realised like, they're quite bad thoughts actually. You know, I read something in the Bible and my response was how can I soften this, you know, it's too scary and I don't want to hear or talk about money, no one else does either, you know, how can I get out of this? No one's going to pay attention to it because I don't want to pay attention to it. And then hoping that there's no visitors coming to church. Like, how bad's that? Like, we always want visitors at church. Uh, but anyway, as I kept preparing, I found some interesting things. And you might know this already, but it, it's quite surprising and important to remember. The Bible's got over 2,300 verses that talk about money, wealth, and possessions. Jesus spoke about money in about 15% of his preaching, and 11 of the 39 parables relate to wealth and possessions. So it's an important topic, and it's one that deserves the appropriate amount of focus. I and mean, Being worried about those who abuse the teachings on money is not really a good enough reason to avoid talking about it altogether. And this topic takes up a lot of space in the Bible. You know, It's mentioned and repeated a lot, so surely that's a sign that it's important and it's means it's something that we can not ignore. So what does the Bible say about your wallet? And does God have the right to touch your money? Martin Luther, he once wrote that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. And Charles Spurgeon says something similar, talking about Christians. He says, with some, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. money feels pretty unspiritual, doesn't it? We talk of prayer and and praise and worship and all those things, but money doesn't seem to fit it. Uh, But the book of James has shown us back-to-back examples of how our day-to-day actions reflect what we believe and how we're expected to grow and be more Christ-like. And he's focusing on lots of really practical, normal, everyday things, and money's not out of place when compared to the rest of that list. So previously we looked at things like how our faith should affect our speech, you know, how we talk to each other, our listening, our responses, our anger. We looked at how faith should affect how we treat people different to us, uh, not showing favoritism, treating the rich and the poor equally. Our faith should affect how we spend our time, uh, not boasting about tomorrow, having patience and suffering, and how we should serve everyone. And then in today's reading, reminding us that our faith should also affect how we spend our money. So after all that, um, let's jump in and have a look at this reading. And to start with, I want to focus on who it is that he's writing to. So he starts off with, now listen, you rich people. So previously, throughout all the other chapters, chapters one, two, three, and 4, James has been writing to believers, and he says time and time again things like, listen, my brothers and sisters, or you know, my fellow believers, believers in our Lord Jesus. He's always addressed them in that sort of inclusive, friendly way. But here he doesn't say, you know, listen, you rich brothers, or my fellow wealthy believers, or something like that. It's it's something different. It's shifted. He seems to be talking to those whose identity is primarily in their wealth, and maybe secondarily their faith, but perhaps more likely talking to unbelievers, or at least those who are behaving ungodly. I mentioned that I was looking for a way to soften James's message, so I want you to pay attention and keep an eye on me here, Um, follow follow what I'm thinking and see if I'm trying to weasel out of it and make it a bit softer Um, but I think it gets more clear as we keep reading and notice the specifics of who he's talking to. Um, So I think in this passage here he's addressing to what I'm going to label for a better word the unrighteous rich. Um, You'll see what I mean and I think the NIV has the right idea with the title when they say warning to the rich oppressors, adding that word oppressors on the end there. The context shows that they weren't rich and nice. They were pretty horrible rich people, actually. Um, If you've even read just a small amount of the Bible, you will have come across many rich people who were also considered godly and righteous. Abraham, Job, Joseph, King David, and Solomon, to name a few. In Proverbs 24, it says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. That's described in a good way. Being rich or having riches doesn't seem to be an issue in itself. And there were many rich people who were followers of Jesus. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Zacchaeus, Barnabas, Lydia. And there's even special mention of a group of women who were helping to fund the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. They were doing good things with their riches. If we keep reading in James 5, he says more about the ones he's talking to. So it's not just any old rich person, as we'll see now listen you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you so he's talking to rich people who've got some misery heading their way your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire so he's talking to those who put their faith in their riches their identity is in their riches only to find it can't save them the illustration doesn't have quite as much weight today because you know, we have electronic and paper money. But back then, if you really did store up a pile of, co- of coins of gold and silver and you didn't do anything with it, it would actually corrode. You know, you're not even using it yourself, but you hoard it up and then it's of no use to anyone. Some photos up there of some ancient coins. Um, so they weren't actually pure gold and silver. They were a mix of metals or else they'd be too soft. Um, and you've probably seen corrosion like this before when they go that sort of bluey-green powdery stuff on them. Even our coins do that after a while Um, and I did a quick read up on this and apparently it's pretty easy to fix Um, if it's in its early stages, you can pretty much just scrape the powdery stuff off and get it back to being clean again. But if you ignore it, it keeps getting worse and eventually they can go beyond restoration and you're just left with a pile of green dust. So back then if you're actually hoarding up a pile of coins and you weren't even using it yourself, it would literally become useless. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So he's talking to hoarders. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So he's talking to those who have exploited others to get ahead. God's instructions to his believers are not arbitrary. He doesn't say be generous because I said so. It's much bigger and more connected than that. If you're rich and you're not paying the wages of your workers, then you're making it difficult for them to behave how they are called to. If someone has a family to feed and they don't get paid, of course they're going to be tempted to do bad things to provide for them. When God says don't withhold wages, it's because he cares about the heart of the rich man or the employer. And he cares about the sustainability of the business, about the lives of workers, about their stress, their mental health, their families, about putting dinner on the table for them. Not just the wallet of the rich man, it's much bigger than that. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. He's talking to those who have focused on themselves and their earthly pleasure, living only for today. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. He's talking to those who have framed or killed others to get ahead. So he's not talking about the godly rich. The godly rich would be described as giving, as generous. You know, they they do pay their workers, they don't exploit. The richness isn't the issue. It's what's being done or not being done with that wealth. So you could be godly rich or ungodly rich. And you can be godly poor or ungodly poor. Being rich or poor isn't the issue. It's how you live your life in either of those categories. And throughout our lives we might switch between those or back and forth a few times. That's not uncommon. Um, And I think we need to be careful here because as with everything, there's dangers with comparing ourselves against others. We'll point to someone who's angrier than us to convince ourselves that we're doing okay in that area. Um, we find someone richer to tell ourselves that it should be them giving their money away, not us. It, it's easy to do that, there's always going to be someone richer. Um, it's almost fashionable, um, I remember back as a student, to remind everyone how poor you are. And for some students it really was a struggle, but for most that I knew when studying, it, it's not really fair to claim that poor category. Um, you know, When you've got running water, fridges, comfortable beds, more clothes than you actually wear, a cupboard full of food and when that's empty we can go back to the supermarket to get more. It's interesting to think that even the richest people 2,000 years ago would be jealous of our quality of life. I read of King Solomon and his riches and his life and think like, actually I'd, I'd rather mine. Um, I have got get to have a hot shower in the morning I bet he didn't have that. Um, I can drive 100 kilometres away and it only takes me an hour and I don't get sore legs and I can be in air conditioning the whole time. Like, We've got it pretty good, don't we? So living as middle class people in a Western country, if your internet's slow or your car breaks down, we sort of consider that a hardship. But it's not really, is it? Notice that James doesn't say nobody should be rich. He's saying that those who are rich should use their rich as well. They should be sharing and not hoarding. Not having so much gold and silver that it's corroding. that's, That's too much gold coins if it expires before you can actually use it yourself. Um, it'd be a strange problem to have, wouldn't it? I wonder how different we would use our money if it expired, if you didn't keep it moving fast enough. It's like when you go on holiday, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you go away for a weekend near the end of the month, and all your friends are really generous with their mobile data, they you know, hot spot off my phone, because it's going to expire in a couple of days anyway. Everyone's really happy to share their mobile data with you then, but maybe not at the start of the month, you know. But you get the idea, right? If, if your paycheck was actually going to expire at the end of the week, if you didn't spend it, would you do anything differently? So the problem there is hoarding. It's, it's selfishness. Not that you can't spend your money on yourself or your family, but talking here of hoarding up things that they're not even using. It's like having a fleet of cars and you don't even use them and they're rusting on your back lawn, falling apart, knowing your neighbour doesn't have one. In Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in the same way that our actions betray what we really believe, the same can be said for where we keep our treasure. An accountant should be able to look at our bank statements and say, this is a generous person. I can see what this person cares about. So I reckon this can be one of those sort of self-fulfilling cycles here. That, that statement, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, you spend your money on what you want to spend it on. The things you enjoy, the people you like hanging out with, the lives that you're involved with, You know, where your heart pulls you to. If our hearts are focused on ourselves, then we store our treasure for ourselves. And sometimes we can be convinced into generosity, but I think often we need to be generous even when our heart doesn't want us to, to send that treasure where it should go and let the heart follow. When we invest our money in people and organisations and projects, it has this amazing ability to get us actually interested in it, to make us care more about it. It's, it's great when our heart prompts us to do these things, but I think sometimes it catches up after we decide to give anyway. You know, when you, when you give, you're sacrificing something to that cause and you want to know it's being used well so you learn more about it and then you get a bit more interested in it. And hopefully you start to see the good that comes from that and then you start caring more about the thing, which in turn makes you want to give more. You can understand that cycle there. It's not necessarily that the caring will come first. Perhaps the giving is what makes you care more. Caring about a cause makes us give, but also giving to something can make us more interested in it. And then the more you want to give and it just goes on and on. And there was a great series I heard from Don Barry at Gateway, and it was called A Generous Life. There was this one sermon in particular where he was speaking of the importance for us as Christians to have a loose grip on our money, not to be irresponsible, but just to be aware of our selfishness. Um, keep an eye out for that toddler response in us that, you know, when the toddler yells mine and they, you know, they grab onto their toy and clench their fist, that's the response that we need to keep an eye out for. We have so many thoughts going through our mind that cause us to have a tight grip on our money and the danger is that if we practice that tight grip, that selfishness, it's, it's not a one-off event, it's a cycle, a cycle that stifles generosity. Just like the, sti- the cycle of the more you give, the more you care, the more you snatch, the more you clench your fist, the more selfish you'll become, the less you'll be keen to give. And we teach our kids to share because we don't want them to grow up with that attitude of the mind and the snatching and the, and the holding things to themselves. You know. We know that the antidote to that in our kids is to teach them that if you share that toy with the other kids, it'll be more fun for everyone. Or reminding them that if other people don't share with them, then it sucks to be on that receiving side. You know, we show them the bigger picture and we try to get them to see it from the perspective of someone else. So God's antidote to being selfish with our money, to greed and hoarding, is for us to have a generous heart, to share and look at the bigger picture, to invest in the kingdom of God. And that's one of those like dreaded phrases right there, did anyone else cringe? Yeah. Investing in the kingdom of God. So I'm not saying give church your money and you'll get three prayers answered this week, that's, that's not what I'm saying. When I'm saying investing in the kingdom of God, I mean look for areas of need, Look for areas where your money can be more fruitful rather than sitting in a pile. And that's not necessarily giving to a church. There are many organisations and people and projects that do good stuff. It's not that hard to find somewhere where your money will be fruitful. Look, give and see the good that comes from using your money well. And the big question that always seems to come up when talking about money and giving is you know, how much, that's, that's the next natural question. You know, how much should I be giving? And we look at the Old Testament and their idea of tithing the 10%. Uh, but it actually wasn't that simple. Uh, they tithe twice a year and then an extra one every three years. Uh, they had weird rules about leaving the crops for the poor people to grab the, the edges. There's all these things that we would consider giving. We, but we're, what we're doing there is we're looking for the right number, whatever that, that percent is or that, that number that we can tick the box so that we know we've done it and then we can move on to other things. That's not really the right way to look at it. The question is not, how much of what I have do I give to the Lord? You know, how much of my stuff should I give to God? And the answer to that is actually none. You know? I, I don't actually have anything. I can't give any percent of nothing. But if we flip that question, how much of God's stuff does he let me keep? That, that's a different weight, doesn't it? It's no longer taking out of my supply. It's no longer sacrificing and giving up. It's, and now it's giving from an overflow. The underlying issue here is that of ownership versus stewardship. So ownership says, you know, this is mine, that toddler voice. You know, We learn that really early as kids. And then when, as we grow up, it's, it's my money, my car, my house. You know, I, I worked for it, so I earned it. It's mine. You know, God can have my Sunday mornings or afternoons as we have it, but not how I do business and not my work ethic, not my money, not my stuff. That's, that's ownership. Stewardship, on the other hand, acknowledges that we are temporary, that everything we have is given to us, that it's ours to look after for a time and use it to the best of our ability. But a steward remembers that it's not permanently theirs. It was never really theirs as well. And James Chapter 1, he was saying that every good gift comes from above. You know, what do we have that wasn't a gift from God? He made this planet that we're living on. Thanks. Uh, We're breathing this air that he's made. You're listening to me with ears that he's made. In Haggai 2, verse 8, he says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And in Deuteronomy 8.18, he says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. How often do we wake up in the morning and give thanks that we are able to go to work? I never do that because I'm not a morning person and I also work from home. But, but that doesn't cross our mind, does it? You know, thank you that I have energy to work to get out of bed this morning. Thank you that my physical health allows me to work, that my mental health allows me to work. Thank you that we're in an environment that we can work in, that our city is not destroyed by war or natural disasters. Thank you, God, for giving us the ability to work and produce wealth. So God created everything, including me, and I came into this world not of my own efforts, completely out of my control. That wasn't something I earned. It's not something I deserve. There's this video that's been floating around on Facebook. Um, some of you have probably seen it, but I just saw it a couple of days ago, and it, and it reminded me, and it fits in really well with what I'm getting at here. Um, I think it was at a high school, um, and the teacher lines up all these students along the field and says, you know, we're going to race for this $100 night. First one to the end gets this $100. And before he says start, he, he lists off a couple of statements. Um, he says to them, if you've got two parents that are still together, take two steps forward. If you've never had to help your parents pay the bills, take two steps forward. If you've never worried about where your next meal would come from, take two steps forward. If you had access to a private education, take two steps forward. He goes on with a few more of these. I think I might have run out of battery. Hello, there we go. We're back. If you've had access to a private education, take two steps forward. So he, he says a few more of these statements and keeps on going. And then he gets the students to turn around. Um, and some of the ones at the front are now you know, halfway down the field. And they can see that there are some who have not moved at all. That was an illustration to help them understand the idea of privilege. That whoever won the race in the end and earned that $100, they didn't really do it all on their own steam. That they had a massive head start due to no effort of their own. There was nothing they did to deserve it. Yes, they still had to run, not to waste that opportunity that they had been given, not to throw away those blessings. The purpose was to get them to recognise that the blessings that have been foundational to their success. And he compares that with life, that we're all running the same race. Some people get a head start, some parts of life go easy and others difficult. But it's a reminder that we can't necessarily look down on someone and say that they're in that position because they're not work- working hard enough. You know, that might be a factor, but you know, we shouldn't waste those opportunities. But it's more likely that there are thousands of tiny things that shape that person, and most of which will have been out of their control. Grace brought me to New Zealand to be born here into a safe country at a time with running water and cars and fast food and loving parents and family and all those good things. Yeah. And being aware of those blessings and all I have been given, that changes the perspective from being a toddler and saying, you know, mine, to loosening my grip and saying, you know, thanks for what I've been giving, thanks for these opportunities that have allowed me to work, to do all these things. Let's see if I can be if my money can be more useful somewhere else. You know, I've been given so much, what can I do with it? And Paul speaking in two Corinthians says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there's your escape verse if you need it. But what he's saying there is that God loves a cheerful giver, and he loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. God's heart is generous. He gives, he doesn't withhold, and he doesn't store up good things to keep to himself. It's a very important attribute of God, his generosity. God gives to be a blessing, and we should give to be a blessing. Not sure if you've heard those prosperity guys, you know, saying, sow this $50 and it will be given to you tenfold, that kind of thing. That's giving to receive a blessing. We're not called to do that. We're called to give to be a blessing. You might have heard that saying that money is like manure. You pile it up and it stinks. If you spread it around, it makes things grow. I think that's quite a good statement. You know, money can do great things. It can rebuild cities damaged by war or disasters. It can provide life-saving health care. It can feed starving children. It can get the gospel message to those who wouldn't hear it otherwise. It can create business opportunities to get people out of slavery. This church wouldn't be going without money. God calls us to be generous, and in doing so, he's inviting us to be partners in what he's doing. Paul says to the Philippians, "'I give thanks for you always for your partnership in the gospel.'" Those that were supporting Paul and that were giving to those in need, he considered them his partners in the gospel. They helped to make things happen. Without those partners, there would have been some people that actually wouldn't have heard the gospel. Financially supporting a person or a project is actually very a very practical and efficient way of being useful to spreading the gospel. Some people are called to mission work or to be on the ground in a church plant or medical aid or physically rebuilding cities, that sort of stuff, but we can't all do that. And even if we could all do that, it actually wouldn't be very sustainable or useful if we all did. But instead, we can live here in New Zealand and live what we would consider a, a normal, normal, boring life, work nine to five and earn money. And then we can use that money to support any number of organisations anywhere in the world and support individuals to make some really good things happen. All from comfort of our own home and working a normal job. Doesn't sound that sort of normal and mundane when you put it like that, does it? Imagine getting to heaven and some random person comes up and says, you know, thank you. Thanks for investing in whatever ministry. You know, your donation put the right person in my path or, or put a Bible in their hand or a church in their neighbourhood. That's the reality of, of giving to, to causes like that. It's a, a partnership in the gospel, it's not throwing your money out the window and you've ticked your box for you. It's much wider than that. It's like sending someone into the desert and expecting them to survive, you know, in an inhospitable landscape where you've got no chance on your own. But if there was going to be an airdrop every day providing food and water and a tent and all those things that you do need, then that's achievable, right? You can live in those environments where you wouldn't normally survive. So it's the same idea when we support people working in missions overseas like Gabe and Biz in Nepal. Um, You know, they move somewhere to do church ministry in a country that doesn't make it easy. They couldn't do it on their own. That'd be like chucking them in the desert and expecting them to be okay. But we can get a group of people over here who are not in the desert. We're living in New Zealand where it's very easy to survive, where we have more than we need, and we can be supporting them. We can be the ones sending those airdrop supplies. And that enables them to work and live somewhere where they wouldn't be supported locally. And when we support people doing work like that, we are partnering with them. We are investing in the kingdom of God. We're using a very normal and mundane thing you know, money earned from working at your job to do something that's definitely not mundane and boring. you know saving lives, rebuilding communities, feeding the hungry, making sure the world knows the love of God. It sort of puts that money from the personal boring category and makes it a bit more spiritual sounding, doesn't it? Money can do good things. Just get the music team to come on up as we finish up. So I just want to emphasise that this isn't a message saying, you know, Abide Church wants your money. This is a message that I hope will challenge you to take seriously the call to be generous, uh, to loosen the grip of your hands if you find yourself holding too tightly to your money, to look for ways your money or your possessions can be fruitful. And maybe that's supporting the work here at church, but maybe that's somewhere else. Uh, It doesn't really matter. There's many places where your money will be supporting God's work better than holding it too tightly or piling it up. And to remind us that when we look at all that God has done for us, we can't really claim ownership of anything, can we? That everything is a gift from God. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Help us to see all that you have done and continue to do. Help us to see how we can best use the money and possessions that you have entrusted us with. Help us to open our hands to hold everything with a light grip. That we would be people with generous hearts, willing and excited to partner with the good things that you're doing in this world. Amen.